0: Amen. All right. Well, recently I was at a conference, and the conference I was at actually talked through uh, a bunch of kind of controversial. Issues of the day. This was like a month or two ago, and they kind of take some of the tougher topics in the Bible or the controversial topics uh, in our culture, and they kind of talk through these topics. And there was one pastor there who is pre- who is teaching on on one of these controversial topics. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you what the topic is because I'm just going to make you wonder um, for the rest of the sermon. Um, and he is a pastor that's been asked to to preach and teach on this particular topic a lot over the last year or two. And so he's at this conference and he's preaching on this same topic that he's been asked many times to preach on. And then his talk gets over. Somebody gets up, gives another t- similar talk on, on, the, uh, similar, on the same topic, really. And then at the end, they kind of bring a handful of the speakers up for a, a Q&A session, right? A question and answer session where we could text in questions we had for the various leaders and teachers and, and pastors that were there and so, uh, I don't know what question prompted this particular pastor to say this, but this thing he said really stuck with me, is something prompted him to say something to the, to the degree of, uh, this is the last conference, this is the last time that I'm going to be speaking on this particular controversial issue. And what he said is, he wanted to be much more intentional in the coming years to plant churches raise up leaders, and to share the gospel with people. And that moment kind of just stood with me. This pastor in particular, he's kind of one of, uh, one of my heroes in the faith too. And, and uh, it, it stood out to me, uh, one, because he was kind of so dejected, I think, by uh, the lack of fruit I think he was seeing in talking about this issue. But it also just stood out to me, his heart, to, to really... Uh, focus on some things a little bit more Intentionally, So that moment stuck with me. And then a couple weeks ago when I'm studying this passage that we're in, we're in Colossians, we're in the last two passages of Colossians that we'll be in, so we'll wrap up the book of Colossians today. When I was studying that with other redemption pastors, talking through how we were going to preach it, I feel like this text awakened me in a similar way. Not to say that it's not important for us to talk through controversial issues, just go back 10 minutes if you don't believe me, um, but... Uh, I think it's very important for us to talk through the controversial issues. I think it's very important for us to think through controversial issues. But as I was going through this passage, it, it kind of awakened me to even what that pastor had said, kind of going, what do I want to be intentional about? What, what do I need to be, be intentional about? Because I think what happens for me and for us is a lot of times we evangelicals, we often like to get stuck on controversial topics. Like for me as a pastor, how that plays out for me is some kind of cultural controversial topic will come up and I just can't stop thinking about it. In fact, I'll often buy one to five books on the topic, or I'll download one to five sermons on the topic, and I will really get stuck on some of these controversial topics and, and thinking through it. By the way, don't use this against me later in a conversation, okay? I'm, I'm being vulnerable and honest. Like I do, I just get stuck on some of, uh, uh, some of that. But what I've noticed in myself and in us as evangelicals and Christians in this church is. A lot of times those controversial topics they distract us and they even we we begin to become obsessed with these controversial topics of the day to the point where we forget that God has a mission to bring restoration to humanity and creation through his son Jesus. Like, that's how much I get distracted and obsessed by some of these controversial topics, which, again, sometimes it's really good for us as Christians to think through those and talk through those and learn about those. But sometimes I let them get me so obsessed with that just little topic that I forget that God has me, he has us on a mission. Like, God has us on a mission to bring restoration to all of creation, And which one of those primary ways that he brings restoration to to creation is by restoring his relationship with humanity, with humans, with the people of God. Like, that's part of what God wants to do through the work of his son, Jesus. And and today, as we're in this last week of Colossians, as I was reading, as I was studying with these passages, I just kind of was awakened by it. I almost felt like this text began to read me as a leader. As I was hearing what different pastors in Redemption were saying about this text, I began to feel a bit convicted and saying, this is what I need to be obsessed about. This is the thing that I need to let distract me is the mission of God in this city. And again, some of you, I don't take that and say, so we'll never talk about the controversial issues or whatever. No, you, we still will because that's part of God's restoration. But I forget how often... That God has us on a mission to help bring restoration to all things. I just get stuck thinking instead of living out the restoration of God. And so I feel like this text today, I feel like it began to read me. And it began to read read us as as redemption flagstaff. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to read the passage together. And then there's four compelling questions that I think that these last two passages in Colossians ask us. And all four questions have to do with the mission of God to restore all things, and in particular, the spoken mission of God to proclaim Jesus and the gospel to everyone. But we will really look at it as the holistic mission of God. And so there's four compelling questions that I think this test, text asks of us. Does that make sense? So we're going to read it. And I think this text, even though it doesn't have questions in it, it asks of us as the people of God some things to think through in relation to God's mission to restore all things and restore his relationship with humanity. Okay? So that's what we're going to do today. Let's hop into it. We're in Colossians chapter 4. We are going to be in verses 2 through 18. So I'm going to read all 16 verses. Uh, So buckle up. You'll be okay. It's it's good at church, actually, to read a lot of the Bible. I heard that uh, somewhere. So, yeah. Um, Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my core workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Heropolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. All right. So I I really feel like this text asks us questions about god's mission i think in particular god's mission to proclaim jesus to the world but god's mission is bigger than that it is word and deed it is restoration of all things that's the mission that god is on and so there's four questions i think this text asks us to consider and think through and the first question is this do you know do you know that you are part of god's mission do you know that you saints, you Christian, you follower of Jesus, you are part of God's mission to restore all things? God is on a rescue mission to restore all of this earth. Rescue us from sin, rescue us back into relationship with him, rescue everything that's been marred by sin into a place where it's not marred by sin and restored. Do you know that you are part of that mission? You are. Not just me up here because I'm paid for it. You are. Each and every single one of you are part of that mission. The early church, it seems like they knew that. It seems like this mission was just part of life for them. They knew that they were part of God's mission. The reason why I know that they knew that is because this last passage in Colossians it's all sorts of names, it's all sorts of people. It's men, it's women, it's Jew, it's Gentile, it's Colossians, it's non-Colossians, known and unknown people. They all knew that they were part of God's mission. In fact, I love that verse 17 where Paul's like, hey, remind, I think it's Archippus, hey, remind him. He's got some ministry that God has called him to, and he needs to complete it and do it. All these names at the end of Colossians remind us that our faith is not a faith of a bunch of heroes like Paul and Timothy. Our faith is the faith of a people. That the mission of God works out not through a bunch of heroes, but through the people of God. Go to Romans 16. Go to other places in the New Testament. You're going to find a bunch of names. And you're going to find that the people of God Shortly after Jesus, we're participating in the mission of God. Do you know that you are part of the mission of God? That means you, you are part of restoring people's relationship with Jesus. You're part of that. You, you're part of seeing brokenness in this world and bringing restoration, wholeness, shalom, blessing to those places. You're part of that. God wants to use you to to restore all things. One day he's going to restore them completely and fully. But in the meantime, what God wants us to do to display his kingdom and display him is to work in that restoration ourselves. To invite people to see the restoration of God. I think many of us, when it comes to God's mission, we have kind of a mindset of like, leave that to the people with time or leave that to the gifted people or leave that to the professional clergy people. When I read the New Testament, that was not their mindset. Their mindset was, we are all called. We are all part of God's mission to restore all things. Church, you want purpose? You want purpose in the world? Your pur- one of your purposes God has made is that you are here to live out his mission to restore all things. You have purpose for the rest of your life. If you feel purposeless, there is purpose for you. Where is there brokenness? Bring restoration. Where are people far from God? Try to bring them in close. That We are part of God's mission. So this text full of names, I feel like it demands to ask us, do you know that you're part of God's mission? Okay? The second question I feel like this text asks us is this. Do you know or do you pray for God's mission? Do you pray for God's mission? Uh, once again, Paul and Timothy here, or Paul, or maybe it's just Paul at this point, uh, mention these prayers of thanksgiving, telling the church, hey, constantly be in prayers of thanksgiving. And almost like this is central to the identity of, of God's people. And I think part of why they do that is because I think all this mission talk that they kind of go through in this, these passages, they, the, the, living out God's mission is not possible if we're not constantly thankful to God. Like the rest of this sermon will just feel like an added burden if you are not looking in your spiritual life, in your normal daily life, to be thankful to God for all he's done. Our living out of mission is not because of a burden, not because of an obligation. It's because God has come and rescued us. We are the prodigals that he's welcomed home. We are the, we, he has found us and he's brought us in. And we reflect on God's goodness in all sorts of ways to us. And that's what prayers of thanksgiving are. And that should fuel us in our mission as the people of God. And then another sort of prayer that Paul and Timothy talk through here is this kind of prayer for an opportunity to evangelize, to share about Jesus, to talk about Jesus. Right? Paul, Paul and Timothy, they, they go, hey, pray that, that a door is opened While I'm here in prison to share and talk about Jesus. I love that Paul doesn't say, hey, pray that I could kick down a door to share Jesus with them, right? He's like, pray that God gives us, that God makes a way for an opportunity for me to share about Jesus. Which just as I read that, the question that just cried out to me is, do I pray for God's mission? Do I pray like that? Do I pray for myself? Do I pray for us in our church for opportunities, for open doors to talk about Jesus? I don't know if I do. Because I really believe the key to all human life is Jesus. I really think he's the treasure of all. Every treasure you're seeking, it's actually Jesus. Jesus is the greatest treasure there is. And those that have understood that he's the treasure, they've prayed for God's mission. They've prayed for open doors. Right? I, I, can't, I can't convince you to talk about Jesus more. I can't. I can't convince you to talk about uh, Jesus more. In fact, talking about Jesus in our culture, it's like seen uh, like it's seen like a sin. It's just seen like a sin. And what's unfortunate is we, because our culture sees talking about Jesus, sharing Jesus, sharing the gospel as a sin, we've kind of drifted over with them and go, yeah, maybe it is a sin. So none of us really want to talk about Jesus anymore. The only problem with that is how will they know unless we tell them? How will they know? How beautiful the feet of the one that shares the good news—that King Jesus has come, and He's restored all things through His life, death, and resurrection, and He's bringing restoration one day again, fully and completely. We do we pray for God's mission? So I, I can't convince you. I've, I've as long as I've been like preaching and doing sermons and whatever, uh, even past the time here at this church, what I've realized is these sermons almost always fall flat. <laughs> Like, I can't convince people to pray or convince people to talk to others about Jesus. I don't think I can. I don't know if that's a cultural moment. I don't know what it is. But what I think I can convince you of is what Paul is asking the church in Colossae to do. Would you pray for me then? Would you spend, like, most of your days just saying, God, give Anthony an opportunity to share the gospel, to talk with someone about Jesus? Would you pray for other people in our church? Would you look at people in our church and go, God, will you help them to have an open door to share the gospel? Would you pray? I'm not, like, maybe you don't want to share the gospel. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you feel like you have no opportunities. Will you just pray that our church becomes a church that has plenty of open doors open for us to share about Jesus, to talk about King Jesus? Would you pray for that? Over the last 10 years as we've been a church, almost 10 years now, officially, uh, we've grown from two two ways we grow as a church. One way is people move to town and they Google us or Google churches and find their way here. That's fine. The other way is church transfer growth. And church transfer growth is some people are at one church and they come to our church because it feels better. It seems better. And what I've learned over these last two years and seeing what COVID and everything around that time period that came with COVID did, one thing I realized I'm not interested in anymore, I'm not interested in the church transfer growth anymore. I'm not. It helps pay the bills, helps make my life easier, but I'm just not interested in that sort of growth anymore. It's fine if it happens. Don't feel guilty if that's your story. But I'm just saying, like, I'm not interested in growing that. I'm interested in growing by sharing Jesus with people that don't know Jesus and then they're part of the church. That's how I want us to grow. Like this week, guys, I've been praying like, God, I pray that we always hear from God through these sermons, through these passages. But I'm like, God, there's just something extra in me that I really hope we take this to heart. That we really pray for open doors. That I I just want us to be the sort of church that shares the gospel with people and they are saved, that we love people so well that they get to know Jesus. I want us to be that sort of church. Church, will you pray for me? Will you pray for each other to have open doors to share about the mystery of Jesus? The mystery that some guy 2,000 years ago of a different country is actually the Lord of the universe. Would you pray that we have opportunities for that? I want That to be part of who we are, church. I really do. I can't convince you to do it, but will you pray for it? God, will you, God, will you open doors for this church to share about your son, King Jesus? Pray that with me, church, at times. All right, the next question uh, that I feel like this text asks us is this. Do you live life as a wise display of Jesus? Do you live life as a wise display of Jesus? Let me reread verses 5 and 6. Act wisely towards outsiders. Make the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. For Paul and Timothy, the church living wisely in front of the watching world was so crucial. It was so important. It was almost urgent to them. It was urgent to them that the church would live wisely with those that didn't believe in Jesus. Is the mission of God so ingrained in us that we think about how we live in front of outsiders, those that don't think Jesus is Lord? Do we think to live wisely in front of them? Are we wise about what we say? Are we wise about what we do? Does how we live uh, almost encourage people or draw people into wondering about who we are and why we live that way. I think we live in a culture it really appreciates foolishness. It just does. If you go to Proverbs and look at look at what is wise living, what's foolish living, our culture appreciates a lot of foolish living. Spout off your opinions, no matter how how it sounds. If you think it's what's right, do what you want no matter how horrible of a witness to Jesus it might be. I think sometimes this foolishness our culture celebrates has infiltrated its way into us, and we have this rugged individualism, and, and we're foolish rather than wise in front of others. And I think sometimes our foolish living causes the outsiders, those that, are, that don't believe in Jesus, around us to not even consider Jesus because of how we're living. We are to live wisely in front of the watching world. Live wisely, church. Think about your words. Think about your actions. Because I think too many of us live foolishly, and it pushes. I really think your foolish living, our foolish living, my foolish living, pushes people away from Jesus. I'm going to give two examples. One's kind of serious. One's kind of silly, okay? But I actually agree with both of them, all right? Two examples of foolish living that I feel like we Christians do a lot. This first example comes from a pastor friend of mine. He was talking about at his small group. There was a woman who had been coming who was married, but just she was coming. Her husband wasn't coming to the small group ever. And uh, she kept coming. She kept c- uh, coming to the small group. She, I think she was a newer Christian, if I'm not mistaken, and her husband never came. Well, eventually, one day, uh, the husband comes to small group. And on that same day, somebody in the small group, a strong Christian or a Christian, I don't know how, I can't really, I don't know them. So a Christian uh, starts spouting off about Mormonism, just railing on Mormonism and how terrible of religion it is. All, all, just any, anything, they were saying all these negative things about Mormonism. Now, what my pastor friend found out later was that wife's husband was Mormon. That's why he hadn't been around to small group. He's Mormon. Coming into a different religious space like that was like a big daunting thing. And the first time that he did it, had a guy in there just spouting off about Mormonism. I think a lot of us in small group even kind of live like this. Where we're not wise enough to go, hey, why hasn't her husband been coming? So maybe I should be careful with my words today. But because we value individualism so much and our, really our opinions so much, We'll just spout off whatever in front of whomever, no matter if it pushes them away from Jesus. There's kind of like just mission 101 for us as the church to understand that we need to live wisely in front of outsiders, okay? Okay, here's the silly, fun example of I think sometimes Christians live foolishly in front of outsiders. Why do you guys put Jesus fish on your cars? That's what I just, why? Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not trying to, I haven't looked out in the parking lot whatever, but like, why are there Christian messages on your car? You guys know we're all bad drivers, right? Like, everybody. If you, here's an example. You're supposed to yield while turning left, church, okay? I don't know. In this city, no one yields while turning left. It's insane to me, okay? I've literally had someone from the church be like, wave their hands at me. I'm like, you're supposed to yield. Um, in my heart, I didn't say it. Um. We all have something where we drive bad. I know me. I think it's I'm bad at checking blind spots, all right? Like, we all have things where we're bad, when we're driving bad. So some of us Christians go, you know what? We'll help that. Put a Jesus fish on the back of my car. So now when I cut someone off, they go, oh, Jesus cut me off right now. Like, I hate the bumper sticker. The one I hate the most, this bumper sticker where it's like if you're close enough because the font is small enough, it says, like, do you follow Jesus this closely? I was like, no. Like, no. 95% of this town is not a Christian. Like, they're not, like, I really want to hear the story that someone read that and was like, dude, I am tailgating this guy, and I need to become a Christian. Like, like no one thinks that. Christians, stuff like that is foolish living. I know it's a silly example, but that's foolish living. Like, I want to be a banner for, like, Jesus by, by showing off my bad driving or my snarky comments. Like, there's just little things we do like that where if you just read the book of Proverbs and applied it to all of your life, I think you begin to see what Paul and Timothy are getting at when they are talking about wise living. Church, our wise living draws people in to Jesus. Somehow. Think of the prodigal son story. The prodigal son knew his father was a good steward of his stuff, and he said, man, the servants got it better than me. I'll go back. I think sometimes that's how people are drawn in. They go, man, they, they understand. there's wisdom that they have. I don't think if you went out and pulled people and said, do you, do you think Christians are wise? I don't think they would say that. I'd say, I think they'd say, they got some weird bumper sticker stuff going on. The, this text commands us to live wisely. It's part of God's mission to live wisely. God wants to display himself through us. That's wild. I don't know why he does it that way, but he wants to display himself through us, and part of displaying God through us is by us living wisely into his wisdom. All right, A a, a scholar, William Hendrickson, he has a quote kind of about this text that I think really nails what I'm trying to get at. He says, "It, It is as if the apostle were saying, behave wisely toward outsiders, always bearing in mind that though few men read the sacred scrolls, all men read you. That's, that's true, church. The, world, the watching world is reading us instead of the Bible to get to know Jesus. Are we going to take advantage of that in a good way? All right, I think that quote even just leads me to this last question very quickly is, does your life demand an answer? Does your life demand an answer? Paul and Timothy, there in verse 6, did you see what they said? They are saying, hey, be gracious and wise in your speech, salting your speech, making your speech good for all those around you so that you will know how to answer each person. For Paul and Timothy, the assumption was the assumption was that the watching world would look at the Christians in Colossae, this new young church in Colossae, and they would demand an answer. They would say, give me an answer for why you live that way. Give me an answer for why you're following Jesus. Give me an answer for why you've become a Christian. Does your life demand an answer? For Paul and Timothy, it was just assumed that if you live like a Christian following Jesus, your life should demand an answer. Do those outside the church see you and say, hey, why do you do that? Hey, tell me about your faith. Why are you a Christian? I think for a lot of us, we never get asked that. It's funny. Growing up, I heard all the time examples like, "Hey, if you just live great, like that's gonna happen." That's not happened to me once, like in my life. It's not happened to me once, and I, I think it's because my life just sometimes just doesn't demand an answer. And I think it doesn't demand an answer. Here's three reasons why my life doesn't demand an answer. The first is I think at times I lack a spirit-led boldness. The early church, they were praying, God, make us bold, give us boldness to share Jesus, to talk about Jesus with the world around us. I don't even think we think in those terms. Like, God, give me boldness to share you with others. Right? It's that whole seeing evangelism as a cultural sin. So we stop ourselves from evangelizing ourselves. Here's the thing: for those of us that lack that bold, spirit-led Witness. I think what we have to realize is, even though the world hates hearing about Jesus and people outside the church don't want to be evangelized to, if you're doing it wisely, they will actually not even know it's happening, and not in a manipulative way. But they'll be happy to have conversations with you about Jesus. I remember, like a number of months ago, uh, a, a friend of mine is at a wedding. And he's having this long conversation with me about church and Jesus and how he grew up and all this stuff. And it's littered throughout the conversation is I hate when they try to evangelize in me. And I wanted to be like, well, guess what? It's happening right now, bro. <laughs> like, but I did say that. But there's just wise ways to love people well in conversation where it won't feel like what they think it's going to feel like. We lack a spirit-led boldness at times. Uh, another reason why I think uh, our lives don't demand an answer is we lack a loving witness. We lack a loving witness. Some of you are just trouncing through this city, doing whatever you want, saying whatever you want, in the name of whatever you want. We just, lack, we just lack a loving witness. We don't look loving to anybody. We don't look loving to anybody sometimes. And I would just encourage you that if you lack a loving witness to begin to center all of your behavior in love. Begin to think through that. We should be so loving that the people around us that so disagree with us because culture disagrees with us still want to be in relationship with us because we love them the best? Do you have people like that? That, that if the world was watching, they would say, this person doesn't make sense with this person, but they're friends. And that can happen if you love well, church. Um, another reason I think our, our lives don't demand an answer is because we lack a, a public witness. The early church, they had a public witness. The early church's motto wasn't like uh, share the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Their, their motto was live like Jesus all the time and talk about like Jesus all the time. That was their motto. And I think that we as Christians, we, we love to live so siloed. We get freaked out by the world around us. So then we build these social networks that never come into contact with non-Christians. The early church had a deep public witness, and I think sometimes we lack a deep public witness. They had a deep public witness, so their life demanded an answer. We become so siloed that our lives don't demand an answer because we don't have a public witness. Does your life demand an answer, church? Paul and Timothy seemed to assume that was going to happen. I wonder If our lives demand an answer. Or this text, this text invites us to see how we are part of God's mission. How we are to pray for evangelistic opportunities. How we need to live wisely, even publicly. Again, it's easy for this to feel like an added weight. Like you're not doing something and you need to be doing something. Here's the thing, I want you to understand how much God loves you and out of that flows worship and love. Which comes out in evangelizing and loving others. Uh, but I want to show a picture uh, called, like, the three-corded strand of uh, evangelism. It's from this book called T- Total Church, and I find it really helpful in thinking through evangelism. A lot, of, uh, a lot of you maybe are feeling like, Anthony's just trying to send us out as salesmen for, salesmen for Jesus. I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I think good evangelism has these three things in it. It has building relationships just for the sake of loving someone. I think it has sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus, talking about King Jesus, talking about his life, death, and resurrection. And then I think it also has introducing people to community, the community of God, the people of God. I think if this, sermons like this feel like a burden to you I, want you, I want you to kind of press into that. At different times, you might be doing one of those strands more than the other. And that's okay, and that's good. We as the body of Christ are evangelizing together, not as a bunch of salesmen, saleswomen. Does that make sense? Lean into this, church. If we are going to evangelize well, we have to lean into this. A lot of times when I'm hanging out with non-Christians, I invite one of my Christian friends along because I just don't want to be alone in that. And I think a lot of times my friend has a better ability of evangelizing than me. So, church, I... I just, this, this text, it just asked me all sorts of questions. I hope asking you those questions helped you guys this morning. I hope it invites us to live into the reality that we're all missionaries, that Jesus has called all of us. Jesus has died and rose to bring you and equip you for the work of ministry. I ho- will you participate in that mission? I hope so. Let's pray, church. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book of Colossians. It's been such a great book to go through together. Thank you for at the end of it just reminding us of your mission and who you are. God, we, we want to be a church that brings your son to this world. And I don't want to be a church that, um, I don't know, is just a great religious experience. I want to be a church that really, genuinely brings you to the world. God, help us to be that church. Help me to know how to to lead in that. Give us wisdom. God, help us to pray for open doors. God, would you open doors for every single person in this church that is a Christian to have an opportunity to talk about you this week? Would you make us a people that pray for that sort of opportunity often? God, we love you and we need you. Amen.